You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh. Sam, I know that it's not our calendar, but uh, the general world calendar over the year comes to an end um, next week. And uh, what you see a lot in the in the obits and in the retrospectives of the year is who we've lost this year. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention the ones that are going to be featured uh, in Time Magazine or any of the other sorts of spots. I'm going to mention something that's obvious, is that we are losing obvi- the people that lived through the Holocaust and in a certain sense, witnessed all of us through the Holocaust. And the number, I would assume, I don't know how many we had in the beginning of this, this 2021, but I'm sure it's dwindled to uh, a very small percentage. And even in, you know, from uh, people in the, who are trying to promote the Holocaust as something that needs to be learned and understood, that this great treasure is going to disappear completely now, that we have people who can tell us who were there. Um, and in a way, they are mourning that, that loss. Um, you know, Sam, that um, Spielberg, and I'm, I'm not sure who he did it in partnership with, maybe it was the, the Weisenthal um, Center, they uh, conducted, I think about 20 years ago, I'm not sure if your mom was part of it or not, I think it was about 20 years ago, they tried to find as many Holocaust survivors as they could who would be willing to speak. And they taped hours and hours and hours of uh, description of uh, what the what their lives were and what their events were. And some of it was, was made into various films that they made um, over the years. I, I, you know, you, this is an area that you are involved in, not only as a, as a Holocaust child like I am, but... Um, the as a psychologist, you of course understand the significance of going through trauma and being quote unquote a witness towards it. I, you know, we've already shown our if they've lived and survived, and now they they can go with seva teva. Is it really that important that that they are now gone um, vis a vis the 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 this of remembering the Holocaust? I wonder about their memories in general, even when their memories were 50 years ago when, or 70 years ago uh, when they were fresh out of the camps. I, I, I question uh, their, the importance of their memory as a historical record. What's your take? All right. So I agree with just about everything you've said, including the connotations there. But obviously, we're talking in a social context where we're violating a taboo here because there's a, um, a social need, especially among us, the second generations and, and also Judaism itself sees itself as having survived a major trauma, a loss of uh, such a major portion of its, uh, its, its people. So there's a taboo against doing anything but um, adulating and glorifying and also making um, these people, their testimony, their experience important. So we have to violate that to a taboo because we have to, I have to be realistic. 
I mean, people can afford not to be realistic, but I have to, you know, call a spade a spade here. So let me just um, outline the minefield, so to speak, and I'll choose to step on a couple of mines. Um, my expertise in this comes, first of all, from dealing with a number of Holocaust survivors, both um, as a child growing up socially within my family and with, as patients and dealing with a number of second generation survivors, again, socially and as patients, and also um, doing some really um, um, comprehensive research on the phenomenon of survival guilt. So that's uh, where I, oh yeah, and also I've had a major practice in trauma, although not necessarily with, with, with Holocaust survivors, but the, one of the major determinants of the disturbances among Holocaust survivors and the second generation survivors is trauma. And I've, I've done a lot of work with trauma. So that's where I'm coming from. So let me just touch on some of the points you mentioned. Um, in general, witness testimony is not accurate. In other words, when you have lineups by the police following a certain crime, those, those um, um, data that you get out of there is not accurate just across the board. That's step number one. It gets less and less accurate if the witnesses are referring to something that traumatized them. In fact, it, it reaches almost zero accuracy as the trauma increases. So of course you will remember exactly what the knife looked like of someone who was trying to stab you, what the gun looked like, that's about it. And then you don't know. The real problem is that even when you memorize, when you remember something, you remember certain key aspects completely, you never remember an entire scene. And what you do is you fill in the dots your ego fills in the dots and you think you remember the whole uh, sequence. You really don't, or the whole context. And so what happens with traumas or lineups is you remember very little aspects and then you fill it in based on certain preconceptions on certain kinds of experiences, certain things you heard. And this is not done consciously. So altogether as a picture, witness testimony is something that I would put the lowest on my totem pole in terms of what's important about recording something. So and, and, and Sam, let me just interrupt for a second. Obviously, yes. what you're saying has uh, ramifications way beyond our conversation. It, it has ramifications in criminal justice and any sort oh, of, sure. any and sort of trial, any sort of trial where we know people are convicted and sent to prison and and lose years of their lives and sometimes their life based on this uh, this testimony of victims or people that um, were... A number of my colleagues, I chose not to do this, but a number of my colleagues make a very decent living as forensic expert, no matter what the topic is, what the lawsuit is, you show up and say, according to you know, my expertise, you cannot trust. And I don't know this person, they'll say, so can you not trust this person? I'll say, yeah, if he's a witness, I can't trust him, period. Sure. And I, I've done some um, really live demonstrations of this for uh, sophisticated people where we set up an artificial crime without the knowledge of the audience. So they thought it was a real crime and then said, let's talk about the details. It was a farce. It was a farce, the data that came in. So this is known. So let me just say. And, and Sam, I think that just just to uh, not to interrupt you too much, but 
I, I think what's why this is so novel, what you're saying, is because film and television have sort of reinforced the idea that trauma somehow um, uh, underscores and and galvanizes your memory. And we, we have this Decker, idea. It's, it's a complete, c- complete lie. But, but you know what I'm talking about. Like, you'll, yes, you'll, of course, you'll, because you'll, it's, you'll... it's so bold that I'll never forget that. Right. Not only will you never forget that, it never went into your long-term memory. So just forget it. Perhaps it went into short term, but after seven seconds, it was gone. It was, you know, it was never there to be memorized. So sure, sure. So I, again, I'm stepping on some taboos here, but they deserve to be stepped on. Now, obviously, I have an agenda, my personal agenda, and my agenda where I identify as, as a Jew and as part of a survivor community is that we owe it to the world, to ourselves, to future atrocities, which will surely happen, to, or to try to minimize those atrocities by trying to keep this thing vibrant, alive, and in people's conscience. And instead of having it disappear, like some you know, uh, problems that happened during the, the, the Inquisition. So I think that a better way to, um, to make this real and make it solid is to go by documentations from the perpetrators. That's the best way to do it because they had no particular um, uh, um, trauma when they tried to memorize it. And again, we're not relying on their witnesses and their witnessing, but we're relying on documents. So government documents, I'd say government documents sometimes who were able to assume some amount of partiality. I know the Mohaber Weismandel was an expert in this. And I, some, I used to fume at his writings in the beginning instead of getting in depth on the traumas that people were suffering, he collected numbers. And I would say I saw him collecting numbers at the expense of actually rescuing some people sometimes. He wanted to have the exact count of trains, the exact amount of people that are going in, how many are going a day, stealing some documents, and then just trying to present them to Western governments or even to the Polish government, the Hungarian government that didn't really give a damn because it was Jews. But the idea was he was collecting data and that kind of data spoke more than anything else to people who were interested in objective reports rather than saying this happened, that didn't happen. I mean, let me give you the boldest example that I know during the war and that's the Munkacerov, my mother was from Munkac, who was actually, because he was a Polish citizen, he was deported to a killing field. So Munkacz was generally in the Hungarian area, and Hungarian Jews were not threatened towards 1942. They were not threatened. This Munkacerov was deported along with Polish citizens to a killing field, and they were shooting people left and right methodically, and the Munkacerov managed to escape. And he came back to Munkach and said what was going on. He was not believed. Nobody believed him. And the understanding was, oh, this was probably so traumatic for you that you're distorting things. Now, of course, they had um, their own biases. They didn't want to believe. Nobody wants to live in terror. It's much easier to live in denial. But the point is, so you have a bold, in the hot seat, you know, active situation itself where a witness is just not believed and for good reason by society. So when you have people here that come up with these testimonies, they're usually, people don't take it seriously. 
And but documents stand when you have documents like Rabbi Weissmandel's data, or when you have Nazi data on deportations, or the number of people killed, and those records were very good. Or even if you have some from the Slavic government, either their own atrocities or, or atrocities that Russians or, or Germans com- committed, those stand fairly well. Right, but um, but, but Sam, you know, you 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 have been uh, you've had the schuss not only to be. Um, uh, developed yourself in uh, a critical thinking method in yeshiva, but of course in university as well, and the way you are comfortable with what data tells you. Most people, of course, don't, you know, their their minds start to cloud when they hear numbers, even if they are very large and, 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 and terrible numbers. For them, you know the description of, well, of so they want uh, they want uh, detailed anecdotes. Right. They want to hear about they want to hear about the, the the sweat on the brow of the capo. They want to hear about uh, the 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 actual abject cruelty of the dogs of you know yes. uh, of yes. the commandant yes. and, and and for them those types of descriptions. Uh, especially the accumulation of those descriptions. Like I, I've mentioned to you, Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, uh, which to me, when I saw it, was a revelation, because it was. You know, and again, I, I was glued to hearing out hours and hours. I don't know if you've watched it, uh, uh, Lanzmann's Shoah, um, but some of those people are the ones we started the conversation with who are no longer with us. But people talking about what they went through, capos, and people who were able to survive. Um, and it, to me, it was, again, I, I, I think I'm a data person, but there's an incredible power uh, of hearing this. What you're saying is that it's... I think prob- it's deceptive. I think the power is deceptive. And I have um, seen people who unwittingly, you know, it's like playing telephone, but you're playing telephone with yourself, unwittingly distort things. And I, after a while, I started thinking they're not so unwitting. And again, that comes from my, from my research on survivor guilt. Survivor guilt is often when you're not talking about a catastrophe that's impersonal. Let's say you find survival guilt even in Hiroshima. Many people in Hiroshima have survival guilt, but I'm talking about something that's not personal. That's just colossal and it was direct, not directed against any one person. But we're talking about concentration and death camp experiences where it's personal. The survival guilt is not gratuitous. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say. It's not gratuitous. Many of those people have things to feel guilty about. And when we feel guilt, I mean, I'm not saying that they really uh, are correct in attributing to themselves the entire atrocities that happens, but they feel that they had some hand, they could have done something, and often they could have. I have to tell you this. It hurts to say, I'm talking about family members. They could have. They could have done things And um, sometimes from the omissions that I've gotten from patients, it's clear to me that they could have done much more than something and perhaps were even complicit in some way. So what happens then is when we feel that that stuff is going on, that is a personal minefield for the survivor who's giving you testimony and they distort things. They don't know that they're distorting things, but they're distorting things. And sometimes you know that because one plus one equals four or equals mm-hmm. minus two. Something is wrong over there. What if you just follow the timeline? The timeline is all warped. And it turns out X or Y or Z. So again, it's 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 bad from a um, 
personal, uh, emotional view to disparage, so to speak, or to minimize the importance. And um, often, I'll tell you another point that's important to, to, to keep in mind, using something in terms of witnesses. And I say, no, we should not. You know, the sad term might be, we lost them a long time ago, or rather, we never had them, because they're the last people I would want to hear from. In yeah, terms yeah. of the actual, I mean, you can use them basically as a stepping board to say, okay, here and there, and then you go research it. Like sometimes yeah. you actually find mass graveyards, or you're able to track down some damn Nazi who was involved with it, or you're able to get the documents once you know where to look for them. But their data alone is fraught, definitely fraught with suspicions of inaccuracy, but I'd say from a scientific point of view, untrustworthy. And definitely have distortions. They all have distortions because they all feel guilty. Yeah, let me let me push on th- not push back, but let me touch three sacred ideas, and I use sacred uh, with quotation marks. Um, the first one is what many people consider, although I was really too young uh, to for it to register in in my consciousness. But of course, I know all about it. Uh, one of, was considered one of the most important moments. Uh, for Jewish experience in, in, the, in the second part of the 20th century, which was the Eichmann trial. And the Eichmann trial, uh, as you know, he was, you know, the amazing way that he was caught and brought to Israel. And then, you know, Israel had spent years, and we've talked about it, sort of, you know, whitewashing the Holocaust and not wanting it to be uh, a discussion in the public square. And now not only did they, their agents, you know, take Eichmann and bring him, but they also were going to put Eichmann on trial as the uh, inheritors of the Holocaust. He wasn't going to go to the Hague. He wasn't going to go to the, um, you know, to the to the Council of Nuremberg to be tried. He was going to be tried in Israel with the uh, by the people that represented uh, the cousins and brothers of the people that Eichmann had been instrumental you can say in it was eliminating. A fanfare. There was a certain amount of oh, fanfare. Oh yes. Yes. And if you know it was it was televised uh, uh, throughout the world um and in a way it was very important for for the state of Israel sort of now holding the Holocaust flag and admitting and then hearing hours and hours of persons who had immigrated to Israel after the war, who had survived the concentration camps, speaking about what had happened, pointing to him, crying. Um, And this was uh, the reason, you know, based on their quote unquote testimony that Eichmann was was eventually hung in Israel, you know, and I I don't know how many uh, is I I think he's one of the few uh, people in Israel that have been put to death with capital punishment. And I have I to tell you that people like me, I was thrilled when that was going on. I loved it. I mean, I was, you know, finally we are doing so, getting back at them rather than, rede- like, of course, having the Medina is a redemption of some sort of our honor and our strength, but getting back at them is phenomenal. Like, I would have dreams of getting into a time machine and going backwards and just trying to kill some of these guys. Yeah, I, I understand. It definitely brought out, we, but, but, but Sam, you realize that the, it was a show trial because there was no question that Eichmann was a, 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 a architect and a mm-hmm. villain. And so the testimony was really not even re- relevant, correct? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the testimony of all the, of the survivors 
It was, was an ab reaction. It was a catharsis of the Jewish people. To, to hear, because people were finally able publicly to, to scream out their pain and cry. And, and direct it at a target, a live target. But, but even if they had not said anything, Eichmann would have been, Eichmann was toast as soon as they got him in wherever that was, in, sure, in, sure. in wherever they got him in uh, Argentina, Buenos Aires, whatever, wherever they got it, whatever that house on Garibaldi Street, wherever that, that, that Mossad agent put his hands on him, he was finished. I mean, Eichmann's life was basically going to be over. But, you know, but still, the, the idea of, of, of testifying, I think, was in that sense, based on our conversation today, really more a way to say we are going to let we're going to let these people have their voice. And Rather, we're also going to make it official, and it's in the court, and it's with transcription, and that gives it more of a reality. Sure, sure, sure. I, I don't think to cry that at all. Um, let me just add one point because some of what I'm saying may seem like totally from Mars to um, some of my colleagues and some of my compatriots. Um, so I just want to explain, I mentioned guilt, okay? And I just want to mention one guilt that based on my work with people, I think is almost a universal. And that is the guilt where you tried to deal with the Nazi killers as if they were real people, as if they were feeling people, as if they were your peers. And the one thing I remember many people um, talked about the selection lines, the initial selection line, and you the initial reaction of almost everybody was to appear sad, crying, helpless, with the understanding that that would evoke the um, sympathy pity and compassion. And I have heard this explicitly from um, survivors who were honest, okay? I think um, there was also very common among people to try to ingratiate themselves with um, not only couples who were unfortunate and horrible phenomenon, but with Nazis and ingratiate themselves in ways that span the spectrum from offering yourself up when you're a woman as a tryst, blatantly, oh, yes. unblatantly, and then um, also the guilt that in the cases, and these are minority of cases, when they would take people as girlfriends, quote unquote, for a certain amount of time before getting them killed, um, going along with it or th- believing you went along with it, but that entire idea that you're trying to ingratiate yourself, to befriend them, to try to evoke their sympathy, instead of saying, I'm going to get killed anyway, I'm going to go out with my honor, the hell with you. Don't you dare touch me. Touch me, I will suck you in the face. Kill me, so you killed me. That's, in other words, that's the ideal, which I think is a almost unattainable ideal for almost anybody except somebody who was trained very nicely in the military, including psychological training. But that's where I'm just explaining where that guilt comes from. The guilt sure. is complicity, but complicity not in saying, look, go kill my wife instead of me. That's not what we're talking yeah. about. You we're know, saying I, 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 ingratiating I, I, yourself and being nice and trying to cooperate and pretending like you're this Nazi's friend or you want to help them say, well, hey, you have, a, you have a stain on your medal. Let me clean it for you. Right. Look, I think every one of us, uh, whether it's a Nazi or someone who breaks into our house or we're, we're in a situation where there's a person that threatens us, 
our survival instincts kick in and we'll do anything, we become a little lapdog, please, please, because you want to live. And that is going to obviously push every synapse in your brain to think right. about ways that you can mm -hmm. use every social skill possible. You know, what right. I think but is interesting- If it does anything which allegedly violates idealist values, that will then haunt you forever. Saying, I, I understand why that. didn't I just- whatever. He, he killed my wife. He killed my kid. Why didn't I just kick him in the face and get killed as well, rather than resign myself to a miserable existence, which is never going to end? Right. Sure. Which, as you know, haunts even children who were bullied as, cho as, as, as yes. when they were young. Yes. Why didn't they stand up to the bully? Why did they let themselves be uh, embarrassed? And so they, ne big... they never live it down. Yeah, so I, I understand that. I, just parenthetically, before I get to my second point, <laughs> which is that Probably all that crying and showing uh, sobbing of weakness, that probably was a ticket <laughs> to the to the gas chamber. Yes, it was. Because and, and they wanted told, they my wanted dad people. Told me, yes. My dad told me that there were people who were sending messages saying, Don't do that. Stand up, no, don't hunt yourself. Stand up strong, look straight in the face like you're you're, you're right. whatever because this way this way you might survive as a worker which is the the possibility that okay we're going to work for these bastards and who knows maybe maybe the 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 allied forces will rescue us and we'll still be alive i think you're giving them too much credit again you have to go back to your instinct i will work and i will survive till tomorrow i don't think people have long-range plans yeah okay but 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 again that was the counterintuitive now let me get to the second sacred cow so to speak and and this has to do with someone who i have a tremendous amount of respect for um and i think i'm very it was very important his ascension to the chief rabbinate and that is our bistral mayor lao they should mm -hmm. be gesundheit him with uh rav herzog or rav unterman or any of the Rabbonim, or even Gorin, as 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 a as a major thinker and a brilliant uh, halachist, and someone who is going to trailblaze in the world of psak halacha for a modern technological, or even somebody in in the vein of Rav Cook in terms of being like a somebody a, of, a, of a visionary, a visionary yes, sure, sure, sure. or a poetic soul. However, he was a very he's, he is a very nice, affable person, a, a, a sense of humor, and. He carried on his sleeve the fact that he was a Buchenwald uh, inmate, that one is one of the youngest who survived. And all the images of him with the, you know, with the soldiers that, that rescued him and that he, in a way, can truly represent um, you know, the, the Israeli who was, who was uh, assaulted and his life was ripped apart by the Holocaust. And he represents the, uh, the ability to survive and to also witness and talk about it. And he wrote, of and course- also a symbol. Let's add that he also felt, feels very comfortable as a symbol. That's what I mean. That's yes. what I mean. And, and, and you know, he wrote a, a, a biography, Al-Tehtu el uh, which was translated in, I don't know how many languages. It was awarded a number of prizes. Okay. And he's also written uh, a number of, uh, some good halachic works that are available on the Bar-Ilan um, uh, data site. Great. I'm nothing against him. And, I, and I've heard beautiful things about his son, that his son, Rabdavid, is uh, a very feeling and a, a does his job in a very great pastoral way. Okay, here and comes I second the, both of those impressions of yours on the personal level. Yes. yes I, so, okay, the shoe's dropping now. However, in terms of a, a child, yes, every child, Sam, their testimony is, is suspect. A child who, again, remember, he's born 1937. 
and he was at eight, it's when he was released. How can his testimony really in any way be anything more than just like, especially you, Sam, coming from your Freudian world, be just the sensations that all children have. Uh, we, in, 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 in my world, in Talmudic Think of world, Anne Frank. Think of Anne Frank's testimony. Wait, wait, wait. Very little, very little of that is Nazi related. Okay, right. So first of all, Anne Frank is very different because Anne Frank, the testimony that gripped the world and made everyone fall in love with her was the testimony of a 13-year-old child, a 14-year-old child talking about her girlfriend, her boyfriend, her aspirations. The, the line of demarcation between a seven and eight-year-old and a 12-year-old is, is very solid. And I would say that it, just like my memories and your memories of our, 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 our cognitive experiences from three to eight are very much a jumble can you imagine what someone like Rabbi Lau, again, shoved it away? I'm, I'm happy to hear his recollections of that period, but I would assume people like Rabbi Lau and others, <laughs> as a Dover Poshet, that what they are saying is just, you know, imagination of, of what their life had been, Correct. If I can just like push that. another sacred cow that you know we 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 look at oh at least we have Rabbi Lau at least we have some people who are very very young okay the, the ones that were like Anne Frank's age or older they are already their time has come they're 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 in the MS but at least we have these eight ones like Lau who were born in in the mid nineteen thirties I think we would discount them as well let's go to the third sacred cow. Um, and this one, I think maybe there, there, there's, I think we could be in agreement that there is some positivity. The, uh, the uh, recollections of the hunted. Also, and, and especially those that um, were hidden, not the ones that had the, uh, had the uh, tattoos on their arms and had to make the deal with the devil in order to survive. But the ones that were saved, the ones that were hidden away, uh, the ones, whether they went on the kinder transport or not, <clears throat> but I think those people have been important in what they have told us that we've been able to find the righteous Gentiles, the tzaddiki, chassidi, umasa'olam, that were involved in saving them. Um, I, I know Yad Vashem has done a, a lot of great detective work using the survivor's descriptions of finding these people and honoring them. So I think here, you know, we, we, we come to something where, well, it might not be exactly accurate what you went through under the floorboard, but at least we can use your description of what city in Poland or wherever it was, where this uh, farmer and his wife were. And I think that's something that, 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 that is, I think, extremely important for us. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I just have to add something which is totally um, not coming from the logical realm, but from the emotional realm, and that I bristle sometimes at these um, righteous um, uh, um, people. Um, first of all, because many of them were not, I mean, let's say they were not idealistically righteous. They did it for a very distinct reasons, most of which were that these Jews promised them all the money in the world. And they, they no, because they knew the Jews will be resourceful and they will get a lot of stuff. And many did, many did. I mean, some were disappointed, but many did. But also, you see, um, I was raised with the understanding that all 
non-Jews hate Jews, okay? And they all would kill them if they have the impression. Of course, based on what my parents' experience was, you know, they generalized from their, from their own bitter experiences. Um, and then as a counter to that, people hold up righteous Gentiles. And my um, counterpoint is from an emotional point of view that we don't have a public record of unrighteous Gentiles. In other words, how many Gentiles turned people in? How many Gentiles told the Jew, yes, come over here? And then they took all their possessions and then turned them in or perhaps killed them themselves. And I would say many, many, many more than righteous ones. So to me, that is such a drop in the bucket compared to everyone else that no, it doesn't change the picture that Gentiles are not righteous. Okay, and that's an, again, realize I'm speaking emotionally based on my own like okay. crucible that I was that I was raised in. So yes, it does help point to some people, and some of them are getting the righteous Gentile label inappropriately, and they be more animals. Okay, okay, Sam, look, you know, this is sort of you, as we would say in the Talmudic, completely fascinating. Um, Menachem Dom's uh, film, Hiding and Seeking where uh, faith and tolerance after the Holocaust, where uh, he his takes his father-in-law, who had been one of these uh, teenagers that were hidden by uh, a Polish family, and uh, they promised to give them everything. And he decided to take his uh, Haredi family to mm-hmm. Poland to discover the place where... Quite, quite disturbing, gr- isn't it? Did you see the film? film. Did you see the film? Yes, quite disturbing. Uh, Okay. The film to me was just great. First of all, it was great because of the, 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 his children, you know, who are living in Harnov or someplace like that. And um, the halachic glasses that they put on in order, like to make the bracha, like they wanted to make the bracha at the spot where uh, their grandfather uh, had been hidden. But what I thought was, to me, I, I, I still have chills thinking about it. Is the you know the the hunchbacked old Polish woman who had been who would go there every day and open up you know that 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 concealed place in the in, in the meadow wherever it was and throw down the food to them and and do whatever it was. Um, and, and and what she was saying is why didn't they write us any letters like why didn't we hear anything from them like like mm-hmm. we like like you know we didn't hear anything we didn't hear a, a hello or we we've been all right um and uh, the fact that they were because of the memories of uh, of the old generation Daum was able to do something he was able to find uh, sam don't call i don't know heroes or not maybe again i know you you eschew uh, these these honorifics but to me, there was something so important about um, recognizing whatever you know, all our listen. Every single thing we do, Sam, is tinged with a number of different intentions. This podcast is tinged with the idea of I enjoy speaking with you. We like giving over ideas. We also maybe are a little bit bored with what everything is going on. There's we're all a combination of many many things. So to to say that this Polish family. Um, you know, to to strip them away from the title of Chassidike uh, Yes, it's it's a pretty hoary 
title that maybe you bristle at. Oh, don't call them tzaddikim and chassidim. I'm happy that they got this COVID. I'm happy that they that they flew them to Yerushalayim. I'm happy that they 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 pointed to them because maybe this is a way we could get beyond the this 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 the the Holocaust uh, overkill. Because the more we recognize these the people that were not complicit and seeing them in, in humanity, the more we could realize that the 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 ugliness was the aberration, not the not the normal. Uh, it's the aberration. Again, I just I just need to push ahead and say it was the ugliness was something that was not, uh, shall we say, total. But I would say these are an aberration and they don't really um, take away or subtract from the generalizations. I think they're an aberration. But humanity, Sam, I'm not talking about the Nazis specifically or the the, the, the Hitlers, uh, you know, the SS. I'm talking about what we need today for the world. Isn't it better for the world that we, maybe it's uh, that we, we see not uh, that yes humanity is basically good isn't that a better message than saying that would be a, a nice false way to live <laughs> yes it would look i just look read a little bit whoever's out there read a little bit of primo levi okay to see what even goes on in the uh, holiest of hearts as they're going through these kinds of situations. And again, look, I'm not saying that my prescription of reality is something that's beneficial to humanity at all. Mm-hmm. To, me, to my mind, this is the way of keeping the honor of the victims alive by keeping their perspective, which was more correct than trying to take little exceptions and you know, um, whitewash well, our memory or our image, which will last until the next atrocity. So sorry for this fatalistic note, but that's what I'm Martin. I understand, Sam. I'm even thinking for our community, the Haredi community, the the idea of and, and, and the transformation that occurred in Menachem Daum's film of his children. His children originally, you know, were I, I just want to learn. I don't want to really register. You know, okay, the Goyim, the Ace of Yaakov, as you say, they changed. Those 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 boys, uh, at least for the moments that they had to come face to face with that old Polish woman, and when they were involved in, in awarding her this medal, they became more tolerant. I think of the general world that's out there. Sure, definitely. And and I think the more we have tolerance and understanding, maybe it's a fiction that we need. Maybe it's like you say, a comic book hero that that's that's painted in splashy colors that isn't real. But if that helps create a, a more benign attitude and positive attitude towards them, then I think what we're talking about is more integrated uh, people, people who yes, don't. definitely. And, and less neurotic people, but also people who will let their guard down and then get stabbed in the back. I see. So again, I have my paranoia. This is my heritage. <laughs> But I don't think, you know, paranoia isn't necessarily incorrect, even though it's not conducive to a happy, peaceful, non-neurotic life. It's not, it it doesn't work. People who were not paranoid in the death camps didn't survive a day. I'm not saying, is their survival something commendable? Maybe they would have been better off to get cynical about it. But I understand you. This is not, I am 
thrilled that my children don't share my perspective because they're not paranoid, they're more settled, they don't have um, the need to save themselves at all costs. And I'm saying even socially, which is a motif that I've inherited, they've not, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled about it. The fact that they don't right away, as soon as there's a government ordinance or a government regulation, they don't think right away, oh, it's against us. It's, no, that's not the first. The first which, which, right, which, even which, if it's which, Finland, even if it's France, think, oh yeah, it makes sense. Rather than saying, ah, let's look for the rotten lining and what's going on here. So right, again, I'm not preaching this as a mental health paragraph. I'm teaching it more, first of all, as my mission as a Holocaust survivor's child to keep <laughs> this paranoia alive. And second of all, because I do believe it's realistic. Okay, so uh, although you know, right before we started recording, Sam, you know, you were talking about the the inconsistency and the um, rebelliousness of so many in, in in the Israeli society of accepting the mandates and what they're hearing from the health officials and viewing it as a conspiracy. And you but know that, that comes the, from hubris. That comes from hubris. That doesn't come from being paranoid about the world. That's hubris. Again, the two I think are are intertwined because you know the narrative needs to be fashioned out of something. And there's the idea that they're out to get you, especially the Haredim are, are hated. They're the ones that the, that the, mm-hmm. the government wants to get rid of, and they wish they they would eliminate them. Don't trust them. I think the, the or even in the United States, don't trust what, what what's happened. Don't trust the CDC. Don't trust what anyone is saying. That that dismissive attitude, I think, is can be a more ameliorated. Don't trust and, reformed Jews. Let's put reformed Jews in there too. All right. They, I think so. All they care about is destroying religion. Ah. Right. So the, the more we the more we use like these righteous Gentiles, so to speak, and the more we hear about that, it, it can break that 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 attitude. And I think that that's something that um, uh, is important. Now, you're right. It might be a fiction and maybe, <laughs> but it's, I think it's a good thing. And I think that's something that, it, it, as I said before, and I'm repeating myself, we don't mire ourselves in, in, in a past, but we either give ourselves the, the strength for the future. I don't really believe, Sam, you think, oh, it could happen again. I don't think that you are one of these people that say, keep your paranoia uh, uh, on the highest level because you never know, they might be but coming again for us. I feel obligated to say it. I feel obligated do you, to But say do it. you really think, you really think that you think here in New Jersey where I am, that suddenly the Bund is going to be marching in the street and no, looking I, for mezuzahs on doors? So. I don't think so, but that is my, the that is the mission that's been implanted to anyone and inversely related to their distance from Holocaust survivors. Okay, so I, I guess the difference, the well, look, you know, we talk about our, our our differences and our similarities. I think the difference between us is that, you know, I was born you know, 10 years after you, and therefore I didn't hear it as intensely you as you did. You were also not, were not born in the crucible of an entire Holocaust generation. I didn't know anybody who was not in a concentration camp. I mean, no adult no adult. The question was, which one? I mean, I remember when my parents would meet someone. So which camp were you in? That was <laughs> right. the question. Right. Sure. And, and, and since my... And my... being raised with people who are, let's say, people who have been in America for generations or non-Jews in your community. 
was none like that. The grocer, the baker, the candlestick maker, they were all people with numbers on their arms. Right, right. And again, you're right. You can't compare whatsoever. And, um, yeah, but, and, and therefore, and I know the, your work that you're doing with second generation Holocaust survivors probably has to take that into consideration. People that were raised in Williamsburg, like yourself, sure. and people who were raised in Memphis, like me, there's going to be a totally different dynamic and a totally different sense of image. Well, Sam, I'm, uh, as we say, uh, they should have a Lichter Ganeiden, and we should sure. move on. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 